G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. If you're going to really grapple with and understand a passage of Scripture, you've got to be willing to do three things. Number one, you've got to attempt to understand the context of Jesus' words. What is Jesus saying in his time and his culture? Second, you've got to be willing to contextualize the truth that is discovered or precept into our modern day lives. And then ultimately, you want to consider the 40,000 foot view. What is the overarching truth of this Scripture? And especially this weekend, I want to do that with this parable in Luke 20. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill, and this is Today with Jeff Vines. We're in a new series from Pastor Jeff. He's talking about going all in. Today's message is called It's All His. How about we just get straight into it? And Pastor Jeff can explain in greater detail. I'm in Luke chapter 20, verse 9. Please find a Bible, turn there. We're going to go through this text together. Let me just say right from the get-go, we have to learn the Word of God. Entertainment is good, but it will not sustain us over the long haul. And I look back over the course of my ministry and some of the sermons that I preach, and I see so much wasted space. Not that it was bad space. It's just that when you and I leave a message, whether we're watching on YouTube online or in church in an auditorium somewhere, we ought to have this understanding of Scripture, of the revelation of God. We ought to leave with a better grasp of what the Bible is trying to teach us. Why is this story in the Bible? What am I supposed to learn? How does it transform my life? If that doesn't happen, then we've just kind of spent an hour and a half, whenever it is, listening to a sermon or in church, we've spent that time maybe experiencing something, but not going deeper in our commitment and our faith and our understanding of who God is. That's important. So in Luke chapter 20, I'm going to read this passage. It's one of one of my favorite parables. Of course, they're all my favorite. But in this parable, we're told that there is a man, Jesus tells the story, there's a man in verse 9 who plants a vineyard. And he rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they drew him out, or threw him out rather, of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? This is Jesus asking the Pharisees and scribes. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So, 
This is the word of the Lord. Now to grapple with and apply the word of God into our lives, we must be willing. And I'm not gonna do this every sermon, but I wanna just remind you of what we're attempting to do here. If you're gonna really grapple with and understand a passage of scripture, you gotta be willing to do three things. Number one, you've gotta attempt to understand the context of Jesus' words. What is Jesus saying in his time and his culture and what is he trying to communicate to the people of his day? That's crucial because to misunderstand context is to misapply the truth into your lives or to miss the truth entirely. Second, you've got to be willing to contextualize the truth that is discovered or precept into our modern day lives. So what is Jesus teaching in the first century? And then what is the message to us today? And then ultimately you want to consider the 40,000 foot view. What is the overarching truth of this scripture? So again, attempt to understand context, contextualize it to our own day, and then what is the overarching truth? Good preaching deals with all three, and especially this weekend, I want to do that with this parable in Luke 20. First, let's deal with the context. It's important to note that the rabbis of Jesus' day taught that when Messiah comes, he'll be able to do three miracles that only the Messiah can do. Now, I don't think most of you knew that. Healings and supernatural events are part of the Old Testament and New Testament culture. But there are three types of miracles that the Pharisees and scribes taught that Jesus would do and only Jesus, the Messiah, would be able to do and that would identify him as Messiah. So the Pharisees and the rabbinic leaders emphasized again and again to their students, when Messiah comes, you will be able to know him. He will be marked and identified by three miracles he does that no one else can do. The first messianic miracle, they said, was the miracle of healing someone with leprosy, but that person would be Jewish. So he would be the first one to heal someone Jewish of leprosy. Now you say, well, I, aren't there healings of leprosy in the Old and New Testament? Well, there are two, but in neither case was it a Jew. From the time of the Mosaic law, from the time it was completed, there was no record of a Jew being healed of leprosy. And the Pharisees and scribes taught the, the, the marker, the identifying mark of Messiah is that he would be able to do that when he comes. So when Messiah heals the leper, it was said by the Pharisees and scribes, there would be three tests to affirm the miracle. Was he really a leper? Was he really cured? And what were the circumstances surrounding the healing? And there would be seven days of investigation by the priest in the temple. And as they investigated, they would come to the conclusion this is a miracle only Messiah can do. Jesus Christ has done this. This is exactly why in Luke chapter five, verse 14, when Jesus heals the leper, here's what he says to the leper. He says, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as testimony to them. Who's them? Jesus says, don't go tell everyone right now. First, honor the priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, and tell them you have found Messiah, the one who can heal leprosy among the Jews. So Jesus deliberately sends the leper to the priest as a message. Good news, Messiah is here. And you'll notice in the story, in the narrative of the gospels, after this healing, the Pharisees and scribes at that point began to follow Jesus and investigate him wherever he goes. Now, just quickly, as they follow Jesus and investigate him, they discover two things. Number one, and this is important, Jesus disagreed with the Pharisees' definition of righteousness. In their mind, it was the check 
the box of legality. You do all these things legally, and then that's considered to be righteous. Jesus comes along and says, no, yeah, the letter of the law is important, but I'm more interested in the spirit of the law, the motivation behind what it is that you're actually doing. Second, the Pharisees and scribes, religious leaders, as they followed Jesus, recognized that Jesus disagreed with, with the kind of righteousness that would get them into the kingdom of heaven. For the priest, it was man's righteousness, but for Jesus, it was God's provision of righteousness, that he would do for us something that we could not do for ourselves. Now, as soon as they realized that about Jesus, they realized these kingdoms weren't in uh, uh, cahoots. They were not aligned together, so there was going to be a battle. In the priest, think about this, the context in which we're going to read Luke 20, and this is, again, so crucial. The priest and the Pharisees believed and acted as though they control the narrative, that they're the owners of righteousness and the law, and they told the people of God, they said, you do what we say, or you're in or you're out. When Jesus comes along, he reminds them, these are not your people. These are my people. These are the people of God. This is my vineyard. And yes, all have sinned, but I have come to offer redemption and to bring the kind of life that features an overarching joy, one that is free of sin and death and the burden of the legalism that you've placed on my people. So Jesus performs, performs the first miracle. The scribes and Pharisees began to investigate and they learned the difference between what they've been teaching and what Jesus has come to bring. Now here's the second messianic miracle quickly. The second miracle, Messiah, according to the Pharisees and Sadducees' own teaching that Messiah would do that no one else would do is the casting out of a demon who had caused a person to be deaf and mute. Now why? Because we know that demons were cast out by other people, but only Messiah would be able to cast out a, a demon that had caused the person to be deaf and mute. And here's the reason. Rabbis taught in Pharisaic Judaism that three steps must be taken if you are to cast out a demon. Number one, establish communication with the demon. Two, discover the name of the demon. And then three, by using the name, call the demon out. So if the demon has caused a man to be dumb and mute and he cannot speak or hear, these steps could not be performed. So the Pharisees and scribes taught that only Messiah would be able to cast out a demonic force like this. And the reason they believed that is they believed Messiah would be so close to God, he would hear directly from God, and God himself would tell or identify the name uh, and the character and nature of the demonic force. Therefore, Jesus would know the name without having, to be hearing, without having hearing it and would be able to cast it out. Now, this is exactly what Jesus does in Matthew 12. So in Matthew 12, 22, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now they had seen people cast out demons before. So why are they saying, could this be son of David? That's another way of saying, could this be the Messiah? And the answer is, they've been taught all their lives that the only one who can cast a demonic force out of someone who is deaf and mute would be Messiah. Now, the next question is, how did the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, or uh, the, uh, the temple priests respond to the healing? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, here's what we're told. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, that's a, 
That's a term that means Lord of the Flies, and that's one of Satan's many names. Uh, The idea was that flies would feast on excrement and death, so anything associated with excrement and death had to be of satanic origins. So they said the power that Jesus is using to cast out this demon is from the devil himself. Now, the prince of demons, he said, it is by these prince of, or this prince of demons that this fellow casts out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts. In other words, they didn't say it out loud, but he knew their thoughts, knew what they were thinking. And he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? So Jesus is saying, this is preposterous. It's illogical. If I'm doing this by Satan, a house divided will not stand. This is not what Satan does. He doesn't cast out demons. He puts demons within. And then he says, by the way, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. Jesus is saying, you don't know. You know the power. You know this is a messianic miracle. If you accuse me of this, then you have to accuse your own prophets or or, or teachers of this same thing. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Now, just quickly, time out. What is this sin? I get asked this question all the time. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit was to refuse to acknowledge the work of God when you knew it was the work of God, okay? To to attribute the work of God when you know it's the work of God to something else, especially worse yet, to the devil himself. So in essence, to deny the work of God through his son, there is no other way of forgiveness. Since Jesus is the only one who offers atonement, if you deny the work of the Spirit, On the life and ministry of Jesus, there's no way that you can be forgiven of your sins. However, and this is all to do with context, in my humble opinion, this sin is a national sin rather than an individual sin. Because when the Jewish believers, even today, witness to their Jewish friends, so these are Messianic Jews who witness about Messiah in modern day Israel, one of the Uh, complaints or objections they hear goes like this. Well, if Jesus was really the Messiah, then why do our rabbis not believe that he was Messiah? So even in Jesus' time, the Jewish masses knew the three miracles that Jesus would do, but yet when they saw them, because their own religious leaders did not believe Jesus was Messiah, also denied he was Messiah. They followed their leaders. And as a result, There was punishment and destruction that came upon the children of Israel in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. Judgment did come to that generation. The vineyard then was entrusted to new vineyard keepers, and we'll come back to that just in a moment. So one miracle, two miracles. Jesus had done them both. Now here's a third miracle, the third messianic miracle. It was said that only the Messiah would be able to heal a man who had been born blind. Now, Other people had healed those who were blind, but we're talking about a man who had been born blind. And in John 9, Jesus does exactly this. And notice the question the disciples ask when they are introduced to this man born blind. I'm in John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, you and I look at that and we think, what? You can't sin before the age of accountability, and you definitely can't sin before you're born. But 
the questions come from the Pharisees and scribes because of a misunderstanding of two things. Number one, there is a verse in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7 that says, God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. So rather than understanding the Bible's teaching that the flaws and weaknesses and sins in moms and dads are passed down to generation through the life patterns and their habits and their own weaknesses, I know that I see my own weaknesses in my son and my daughter, and I also see my mother's weaknesses in me, the same temptations, the same uh, predispositions. But they took it to mean that somehow if your father was guilty of something, then you too were guilty of it. That was the first misconception. The second thing had to do with what we call in Pharisaic Judaism, the teaching that taught that the fetus has two inclinations. One was called Yetzar Hara, which means evil inclination, and two is Yetzar Hatav, which means good inclination. And the Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day believed that during the months in the mother's womb, there is a struggle of the fetus for control between these two, between evil and good. And I think some of you mothers are going to find this quite humorous. If the evil inclination wins, then the baby kicks the mother. You thought the baby was kicking because it was happy or just letting you know he's, he or she is there. Well, according to Pharisaic Judaism, when the baby kicks, the evil inclination has won. And the baby kicks, and this is important, because it resents dependency and contingency. It wants free. She, rather, or he wants free. She wants freedom and self-sufficiency. So what Jesus does, there's much more to say about that, but what Jesus does is dispel both points by saying in verse three, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him, John 9, verse three. Now, the other thing about this third miracle is that it happens during the Feast of Tabernacles. And you say, well, so what? Well, Jesus told the blind man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. During the Feast of Tabernacles, the one pool that was used for all the festivities was the pool of Siloam, which means there would have been huge crowds gathered there who knew this man, who knew that he had been born blind and now would be able to testify that now he could see he was healed. They would know if this is true, then Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is present. So Jesus is demonstrating and giving the third messianic miracle to communicate, first of all, to religious leaders of his people and to the Jews that Messiah has come. What's the point of all this? The scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day knew. They knew that Jesus was Messiah. By their own standards and tests, they knew who Jesus was and they still rejected him. Now, the question is, now stay with me. This is where we go into modern day application. Why? Because they knew if Jesus was Messiah, because Jesus was teaching something different than they thought would allow them to control and maintain authority over the people because they thought they owned the people. They thought they were the owners of the vineyard. They believed that if Jesus was the true Messiah and they knew that he was, they would lose all their power and authority. It would all be gone now that the people would stop following them and start following Jesus, which is exactly what happened. They did not want to lose their influence with the Romans. They possessed freedom and self-determination. Jesus comes along. They know his identity and they still refuse to submit. 
In fact, after the miracle of John 9, where Jesus heals the man born blind, the conclusive messianic miracle, the religious leaders began their investigation. And if you read John 9, it is a lengthy account, somewhat humorous, because when they realize this is the third messianic miracle, they go to the man born blind and there's an inquisition. Who did this? How did he do it? What was going on? Then they're not happy with the answer, so they go to the parents of the man born blind. They're not happy with their answer. They go to the townspeople, and then back to the parents, and then back to the blind man. And the reason is they're not getting the answer that they want. And so in John 9.30, the man answered, now that is remarkable. This is what he says to the religious leaders. He's a little bit cheeky. He says, this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. You're the one that's been teaching when Messiah comes, he would open the eyes of a man born blind. So how can you not know where he's from? Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind, he says. If this man were not from God, he could do, he could do nothing or he could not do this. To this, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So they basically said, you're a sinner anyway. Just go away. Because they're not willing. The result of their obstinacy, the reason they are obstinate rather, is that Jesus told them and demonstrated for them who he was, but they're so power hungry and not willing to give up control of their lives and power and authority to someone who loves them like they could never be loved by anybody else, it just didn't matter. Regardless of all the signs, they were not going to change. As a result of this in Scripture, we're told that Jesus said he would give no more signs to the people of Israel other than the sign of Jonah, which is exactly what happens in John 11, the famous story of where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But notice, in John 11, we're told that when Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb, that he weeps. There's great sorrow and then the Jews said, see how he, referring to Jesus, loved him, referring to Lazarus. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, they're talking about the man born blind, have kept this man from dying? They get it. This is Messiah. And if he opened the eyes of a man born blind, he's got power over life and death and could have spared this man's life. And what does Jesus do? Exactly what they're expecting. He raises Lazarus from the dead to show that he has power over life and death. And then what is the response? Now, you would think this would be an incredible miracle. Man, this guy, this dude just raised a guy from the dead who had been dead four days. Four days. And how did they respond? Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So now they're thinking, how can we kill him? It's amazing. Now, there's one more thing, just quickly. This is extra, no charge. But remember what we say about, said about Jesus healing Jewish lepers? Every time he healed a leper, there had to be seven days of investigation by the priest. It's tedious investigative work. Was he really a leper? Was he really cured? What were the circumstances of the healing? In Luke 17, I sometimes wonder if Jesus just wanted to have a little fun with the scribes and Pharisees because he heals 10 lepers. So that's going to take 70 days of investigation. You talk about busy work. Jesus is trying to just remind them, no matter what sign I do, it's not going to change you because you're hungry for power and authority and self-reliance. So I'm going to give you a little busy work while I continue to do my ministry. Now, that was a long journey, but that gives us the context now of everything happening in Luke 20. It's going to help us understand because we're told that one day Jesus was teaching in the temple 
And the chief priests and the teachers of the law came to him one more time and said this, by what authority are you doing these things? They knew by what authority. They're just looking for some excuse to end the life of Jesus, something that he might say that would offend the Mosaic law or their power and authority. They were very frustrated. They knew Jesus was Messiah by their own teaching. So the next question then becomes, Jesus tells the parable that we read about the owner and the tenants in the vineyard in response to their question of by whose authority do you do this? Jesus ultimately says, I'm not going to answer your question because you know, and I'm not going to waste my time, but I will tell you a parable. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. What are we supposed to learn from all this? Well, first, you and I have been grafted into the vine. You and I are the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones who've been now placed in the vineyard. So while this has a first century contextual meaning, if we contextualize this into modern day, into our lives, we learn that the owner of the vineyard is still God and the son or the heir is still Jesus Christ. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.